Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. A year ago, I had a conversation with Mike Raybo, palliative care physician. What was unknown to me at the time was that he had a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Not many of his friends or colleagues knew about this diagnosis until he wrote a poem that was published effectively outing the diagnosis. Here's tell the story of why he wrote the poem and his journey with this illness. Is Mike Rabo. Mike, you're very welcome. I would like to explore an experience that you publicly talked about recently, but I want to start with 13 years ago with the idea that someone had been interfering with your glasses. Do you want to tell us what happened next? Sure. I had been experiencing double vision when I exercised and I kept on coming up with a series of explanations. I guess explanations that I could accept or weren't that bad. One of them being someone must have sat on my glasses. A whole series of of things other than something serious might be wrong. As a physician, knowing that double vision can be the sign of something serious. And it was quite characteristic with with a certain amount of exercise each time I went out for a walk or a run. And it, it took a while for me to even consider the possibility of having a formal evaluation of going to my primary care doctor and uh, lodging this this complaint, this symptom, and then doing the workup, which which I assumed was going to be what it turned out to be, which was an MRI scan of, of my brain. And yeah, it, it was really just the very beginning of a process of not wanting things to be true that I, that I knew were true or likely to be true. It's really interesting to hear this from a physician's perspective because I, as a physician, would be concerned about double vision. I would be concerned in the way that you were about that. But like you, I would have been reticent to seek immediate attention, knowing the possible diagnosis. Was that what was going through your mind at that time? Absolutely. I, I, was, I was dreading the possibility of finding out the differential that I had in my mind, which was mostly around cancer. I mean, I see cancer patients almost exclusively, and I assumed it meant that I had cancer in my brain, and I, I, I couldn't really think that it could be anything else than that. So when the eventual diagnosis was given to me, I was almost shocked. I was almost relieved in a way because what I had assumed was, was I think, probably worse than, than what it ended up being, you know, as, as bad as that was. How was the diagnosis made and was your experience of getting the diagnosis as you would have liked it as a physician? Yeah, so I went to my primary care doc and and this was an interesting experience of literally walking down the hall from my office to his office when my appointed time came and then 
agreed that an MRI scan of my brain made sense and, and got that scheduled relatively quickly. And the results came back quickly. And I, I went down again to his office, just a few feet away from my office. And I think that, that he did a wonderful job actually breaking the bad news, something that I talk about and teach about frequently to students and, and practicing clinicians. He was straightforward, but he did give me a warning shot and said, uh, I remember very clearly what he said. He said, there was something on the scan. And that really clarified for me that I needed to sit back in my chair and really listen and really pay attention and really move from sort of the fantasy world I had been living in for, at that point, probably a few weeks of entertaining the various diagnoses and then discounting things and, and really getting ready to, to receive this news and to hear from him, it was multiple sclerosis. And you sat back in your chair and you tried to absorb that diagnosis. Now, as you know, MS can vary in its presentation and in its prognosis for patients. So you were aware that it, it could be very bad news. On the other hand, it could be some time before you had significant disability. What were your thoughts about that? The first things that came into my mind were the people I knew, the patients who I knew who had MS, who I had taken care of as a primary care physician and as a palliative care physician. And, you know, focused mostly on the sickest, most disabled of those people. That's almost all that I was thinking about was I was going to be that person who I knew who had MS, who was wheelchair bound, who had started to develop some cognitive changes, who for whom MS had wreaked havoc in, in all parts of their lives. And there was really just an incredulousness that I had that anything could be wrong, even, even though all I do all day is see people for whom something has gone wrong with their body or their health. It was a, a real challenge, so almost a shock that anything could go wrong with me. Not that I'm, you know, the, the healthiest person in the world or live the most healthy, healthy lifestyle, but just it, it was really sort of a whipsaw from my identity as a physician to then have this identity as a patient. And I think over time, since then, it's been many years, I, I think that identity issue has proven to be so, so central. Just the concept of this kind of magical thinking that somehow being a doctor on that side of the relationship affected me from being a patient, that I wasn't ever going to be a patient, I was going to be a doctor, and that's what I did. And I was going to be helping, and I was going to be researching and I was going to be prescribing, but not necessarily that I was going to be receiving health care. Not only that, but you went to the worst case scenario. And we as doctors often think when we're giving somebody news that they are hearing one thing, but they may in fact be hearing something quite a bit more sinister, darker, because of their knowledge of somebody who has 
the worst case scenario. Did it make you reflect on what that might have been like for your patients? In general, it's absolutely the case that I think about my patients and my patient relationships very, very differently. I, I think that the thing that I realize most is that the time that you have with your doctor is so limited that it's just moments out of your life that you're having a conversation, a good conversation or a bad conversation with your doctor, with anyone on your healthcare team, and that all the rest of that time, your mind can go where your mind tends to go. Mine was going to the worst case scenario. Other people in that situation might be thinking about best case scenario or denying the possibility that it was really happening or all sorts of other ways. But I guess it was very striking to me that I have to be super careful about language because so much is is hinging on the the words you use and that people will tend to remember the specific words and that's sort of all their their mind has to go on for you know days and weeks at a time before they can check in again with their doctor and i i literally just had a patient today who i was talking with who had a very inaccurate understanding of what her prognosis is that was developed entirely without her doctor. It was based on her her worst case scenario, on the fears that she had. And yet I know, even as an outsider to her relationship with her with her oncologist, I know that her prognosis was actually in the order of many years versus many months, which is what the patient was thinking about. So yeah, I think we we sort of give a little bit of information and then can pretty much assume that that's not going to be enough and it's going to be distorted out of ignorance, out of fear, out of denial, out of all the ways that we, we tend to process information. I'm really in awe of you telling this story, Mike, because I cannot imagine how much this must have been a challenge to you at the time and to see you smile now is very heartwarming. You think then about the patient and the army of people we have around us who could come to our aid when we are busy fighting shadows in the dark, shadows that don't exist or may not exist. So you're in this place having got the diagnosis and it's been left, as it were, on your lap. What did you do next? You're right that we leave our patients to their own devices. And that's how it was for me. I, I went to the literature and read about multiple sclerosis. And it's hard to read about the disease that you now know you have without... Well, for me, it was hard to not just look at the worst case scenarios as presented in the literature, which are, which are just as bad as my imaginings. And I remember very, very clearly my, my father had a thyroid nodule. And I went back to my memory of learning about thyroid nodules in medical school and remember hearing something like 
thyroid nodules only have a 10% chance of being malignant, of being dangerous. And of course, when I heard from my father years later that he had a thyroid nodule, I remembered it as, you know, it's not a 90% chance of him being okay. It was a 10% chance of him being very, very sick or of dealing with cancer and dying. And, and so even with objective information, it's easy. There's enough room, there's enough ambiguity. It's easy to sort of project your own fears onto the diagnosis. But, but you're very right. I, I was sort of alone with it. I was literally alone with it. I left his room and then I was, you know, like, what do I do now? I sort of was chagrined that I hadn't brought my wife with me, my partner with me to, to the visit um, because it was a super high stakes visit that I wasn't essentially prepared for. It was kind of just like another task of a busy day. And I didn't stop long enough to even appreciate what was going on or what was about to go on. And so once the diagnosis was shared, and I, I've had this, you know, a few times over the years with various health, health scares or health realities, where you just, you read the literature and it's sort of a dispassionate discourse on something and the authors don't hesitate to, to talk about the worst case scenario, to talk about all the ways that a disease can be severe, talk about morbidities and mortalities. And it was very hard as a, as a person, as a patient, to read that and try and situate myself in that and not assume how difficult it would be or wouldn't be for me. And, and, and also not to, in a way, I'm sort of thinking about this for the first time now, like not to, not to appreciate what role I had in the future of this disease. This idea that there's a natural history that's irrelevant. I mean, here's a genetic disorder. Here's a demyelinating disorder. There's something physical going on with my brain and not having any encouragement or even my own thought about that it matters what I do, that it matters at the very least how I think about it, let alone whether or not exercise or diet or other things might impact the experience of the disease. So that this idea that illness is this monolithic experience and you kind of have it or you don't and you feel many of us feel good for a long time when we're young when we don't have diseases and then all of a sudden they start accumulating as we get older and it feels like a huge it is a huge burden and and, and feels even heavier you're listening to the health design podcast with your host moyes jiwa It's interesting to hear you describe it because you describe it in very intellectual terms. You describe the books and you describe the prognosis and that kind of language. Was there anger? Was there grief? Was there this emotion that was railing at the world for and at fate at having put you in this position? Yeah, I've done my share of, of railing for sure. And I think about the subsequent 13 years as the time it took me to process it emotionally. And, you know, I, 
who knows exactly if it, you know, what parts me and what parts my medical training, which has certainly become part of me. But yeah, it took me a long, it's taken me a long time to deal with the emotional reality of this for me. Um, it certainly has been easier to think about it intellectually, to think about it clinically, and very difficult. So much so that, you know, I cried uh, when I told my wife. I didn't cry in the doctor's office. Um, I didn't cry in between the doctor's visit and when I saw my wife. And, and then I cried a few more times when I told a few people after the initial diagnosis, when I told my parents, when I told a few friends. But it was difficult for me to tell. It was difficult for me to admit. And it was easier in some ways for a long time for me not to tell people. And that's, that's sort of what's behind that 13 years that you referenced right in the beginning, 13 years of having the diagnosis before I was ready to really be open with it with everybody. And specifically for me, you know, for a decade or more, I could count on maybe two hands how many people I had told and I remembered exactly who those people were and no one else knew. And it took me a good 13 years to really wrap my heart around it beyond just my head. It, it took me that long to really feel the emotion of it, to feel, to grieve it, to grieve my losses, to face my fears about what it might be, what it might become. And I railed in the sense that everyone else looked like they were fine. Walking around town, there's a lot of people who walk normally, and there's a lot of people who can jog, and there's, there's people who can balance on one leg. And there's, it just seems like everyone else in the world is super healthy and isn't dealing with the internal burden that I was feeling of having that disease. And that's, that's someone who goes to the hospital all the time and sees lots and lots of sick people almost, almost discounting that experience and discounting that percentage of the world that really does suffer with disabilities and illnesses and, and other things. But it was, it was very easy to rail and very, very easy to even to see the illness as a, just a huge hassle too. Like, oh wait, now I have to clear spot on my schedule to go to a neurologist appointment? How, how the heck am I gonna do that? I'm so busy. And so it's this, it's been this interesting back and forth over time of thinking that this is an inconvenience to thinking that this is the worst, worst thing that I could face. And it, it's probably neither of those things. It's probably something else. You're describing the stages of grief, and you're right, it's not a linear progression. You come back and forth in and out of grief and denial and anger and then acceptance, blessed acceptance in the end. While you're walking in this dark place, you said you didn't share the experience or didn't share the news with many people. Did you have enough support, even among the, those that you shared it with? The people I shared it with absolutely 
were supportive and and my partner barb in particular was saintly in how patient she was with me and how supportive she was and how much she could put me in the center and allow me to do things in the order and in the timing that i wanted to but i have to say that the bigger issue for me ended up being how important it was for me not to depend on other people how the story I wanted to tell myself, the story I wanted to believe or, or to keep on telling was that I wasn't dependent on other people, that I didn't need other people, that I was there to support others, but I didn't need others to support me. So a father of young kids, relatively recently married, a uh, you know, kind of up and coming independent uh, physician taking care of other folks. So in many ways, for the years after the diagnosis, for, for most of those years, 13 years, I didn't seek support against the advice of of my wife who, who suggested that maybe it would be nice to have your friends know or more friends know. And every time... I had a positive experience with people who knew who were supportive of me or checked in with me. It was incredibly helpful. There was all the evidence in the world before me that when I asked for help, I got it. And when people were helpful, it was actually useful to me. But that wasn't enough to really overcome my own sense of shame about being ill, shame about disability, my own ableism. And I just didn't want to do anything that would box me into having to face reality. I didn't want to use a, an assisted device for walking. I didn't want to get a disability placard. I didn't want to go to support groups. I didn't want to get an MS magazine. I, I didn't want anything that would suggest that I was anything other than perfectly able-bodied. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. With the benefit of hindsight, and given that you had good reason from what you're saying to come to terms with what had happened, and you coped with it in your way, would you have done things differently, knowing what you know now? I clearly don't know what I would have done. And I suppose I would, could say, in all humility, I don't know what I will do when the next you know, big diagnosis comes for me. But it would have been better in some ways to have done the emotional, psychological work that I ended up needing to do. My, my denial about MS, about having MS, or my reticence to share it was, was not the problem. The problem was something much deeper inside in terms of my own identity and what I could accept in myself and my, the, the shame I had. 
So getting that work done sooner would have been better for sure. I, I probably had MS for a decade or so before it was diagnosed in the sense that I had an isolated event years earlier of some numbness in my toes. And I had numbness just long enough to go, to go see a doc and get hemoglobin A1C to test for diabetes and liver tests and a couple of other things that all were normal. And then the numbness went away. And so I couldn't figure out what it was. No one could figure out what it was and it went away. And so I think about that 10 years in a way with some gratitude, like I didn't have to worry about it for 10 years. It was nice. It just, it just wasn't on my list of things to, I had to do anything about. So it was a little bit of um, a gift in some ways. But knowing what I know now, I'm not sure I would say that I wasted it, but I definitely spent time working through something that it would have been better to work through faster. I think it needed to be worked through. And boy, I, I don't know what, what would have pushed me to work it through more quickly because I, I had support and I had opportunity and I'm kind of a psychologically minded person. And yet still the the deep feeling, the deep identity as someone who needed to, to be able-bodied, who needed to be healthy, was so, so strong. It really took a long time for the disintegration to accumulate in a way. In some ways, I think in medicine training, probably like lots of other places in our lives, we, we sort of get good at, we learn to wear masks. Right? Like we put on a white coat and then wrap a stethoscope around our neck, and then we are we are the doctor version of ourselves. And we can see things and touch things and talk about things that might seem very, very strange to do outside of the hospital setting or the clinic setting, or when you're not working as a doc. Um, and so I, I do think that I had gotten good. I think I'm still probably very good at it. To, to have those multiple parts of ourselves, the multiple faces, the multiple masks that we can put on and play a part and be, it's not, it's not disingenuous exactly, it's real and it, it, it's functional, it can be very helpful to be professional when you need to be professional and personal when, when you can be personal. But it had really gone too far for me where I just started to realize that I was feeling very disconnected from things that I shouldn't be disconnected from, from myself, from my wife, from my kids, from my friends, even people who knew about my diagnosis, like, like I know about my diagnosis, I still ended up feeling like I was trying to stitched together these two parts of me that had become it, that that insistence had become really untenable for me and i i wanted a more integrated and and frankly just a simpler life uh, where there was just one me and i was me all day every day no matter where i was and who i was with i can see how being a doctor makes this very much more difficult 
we are not expected to show weakness in the consulting room. Our patients don't need to know what our personal crises or difficulties are because that's not the place that we need to do our work because they have bringing to us their difficulties and they want us to be whole. But of course, beyond the consulting room, you're right, there is a point at which you do have to be less than whole and allow others to make you whole in, with their love and their support, as you've described. Tell us about the experience of telling somebody the news, somebody that was close to you, and how that was received, and how that love and warmth then came into the experience for you. Part of the necessity for me as a physician to be integrated with myself is that it affects my ability to use myself and my psyche as a tool to understand people, to em- empathize with people. And I think that if I'm not doing my work, the work that I have to do uh, to be whole, to find healing, I'm likely not able to be as helpful to anyone else who might be seeking my support, my my assistance. And that, I think, has proved to be absolutely true. I don't think I was a bad doc before, but I think I'm a better doc now. Not based on whether or not a particular patient before me knows that I have MS or anything about me, but just my own ability to be, to sit peacefully and hear what's being said and really take it in and really empathize it. The the cost of inauthenticity, the cost of that sort of double life is is disconnection, is is needing to hear everything or hold things at bay based on the need that I have, this overarching need that I have to see myself in a certain way. So if I'm if I'm trying to tell myself a story that's not true, everything else might have to serve that. All my other relationships might all of a sudden have to be in service to that need that I have. And and this was really, really true for me with my with my family, with my kids especially. I mean, I remember very, very clearly the sense growing up that my parents were insisting that us kids sort of toe the line for the for the family that my parents wanted to have. We had to project the family that my parents wanted. So everything was okay. We were all doing well and everything was hunky-dory. And we got that message loud and clear as kids. And I, I swore to myself that when I became a parent, I wasn't going to make my kids be an instrument of my own projection and my own needs. And of course, years later, I was doing the same thing. It's really hard not to do. I was doing the exact same thing. And and I realized that I owed it, of course, to myself, but I owed it to everyone who loves me and is, is close to me to really allow that relationship to be based on that relationship and that person and not on my own need to protect myself. And the people in my life were incredibly generous to me to sort of allow me to run the show for so long and to say, look at, I need to not talk about MS, so I need you not to talk about MS. 
And that was a gift that people gave me, a gift that stopped being very valuable to me in the end. And I and I appreciated it. it was something that I was asking people. So when I when I did tell people during those first 13 years about the MS, it was clear to me that it didn't matter to other people the way it mattered to me. Like it wasn't a shock to other people in the way it was a shock to me. It didn't change how people thought about me as far as I could tell, the way I feared it would change how people thought about me. So I just kept on having <laughs> evidence after evidence after evidence that people were ready to be caregiving, to be care partners, to just be concerned. And it wasn't a big deal for them. But it was a big deal for me to tell each and every one of those people. Um, as a matter of fact, you start talking about MS with people like lots of other illnesses. Everyone has someone. Most people have someone in their lives who has MS. And they're like, oh, yeah, I've got a cousin with MS. Or I've got, you know, my sister-in-law has MS. And, you know, of course, that person's either doing better or worse <laughs> than you. So, you know, the, the next step of that is they'll tell you about how it goes for them or how it went for them. And that sometimes is hard for sure. But in general, you know, everyone was nothing but, but caring. And again, just more and more evidence that accumulated over more than a decade that the only thing that was stopping me from talking about it with people more freely and more widely was just my own need to pretend that everything was okay. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I doubt that you were any less a physician, notwithstanding all that was going on inside you. You've got extraordinary insight extraordinary humility that marks you as a healer, Mike. So that's my reflection back to you in the time that I have known you. I do not imagine that this reduced your capacity to be the doctor that you are hoping that you are. I want at this point to ask you to read the poem that eventually led to your disclosure to the world that you had this condition. 12 or so years into this private diagnosis, this sort of relative secret, and the on the balance sheet, things are starting to shift in my own mind about the costs and the benefits of, of keeping things quiet in the world and of not really expressing myself. Sort of gradually starting to consider the possibility of talking to more people, of telling more people, essentially of accepting the invitation that I was getting from my wife all the time to tell more people, because she saw it as support for me, which it was, but there were other things I was paying attention to. And I had gone on a weekend with her to the beach in Bodega Bay in Northern California, and had an experience on the beach there, which is the subject of the poem that I wrote up because it was a meaningful experience for me. And I, I wrote it up as a poem and 
a few months later, I saw an announcement for the Paul Kalanithi writing contest. Many of your listeners will know that Paul Kalanithi was a, a physician who wrote a memoir after his diagnosis ended up dying a number of months after his diagnosis, but wrote about the experience in a book called When Breath Becomes Air, wrote about the experience of facing life-threatening illness of his relationship with his wife and having a child with her and his experience of being a doctor and, and a patient. And so in his honor, there's a writing contest uh, that I had seen announced every year for a few years. And when that announcement came across my email, I thought about that poem that I had written, and I made a bit of a, a deal or bargain with myself that I would omit the poem, and if it got published, meaning if it won the contest, then it would get published and I would, by default, have sort of come out to everybody, to the world, to the public, with having MS. And it seemed like sort of a safe bet at the time. I, I didn't think that it was likely I was going to win. And, but I was clearly moving closer and closer towards this idea of getting comfortable with talking about my diagnosis. And lo and behold, I, I did find out on a Friday that I won the contest, which meant that I had, to my calculation, three days until it was published on a Monday or Tuesday, to figure out what I was going to do and to do it in terms of all the people who might have otherwise known about my diagnosis, who might hear about it because of the, the, poet, the poetry contest. And so I spent the weekend writing an email which announced to my work colleagues, essentially to what I call my work family, which numbers in the hundreds. I mean, UCSF is a large academic medical center. Um, I didn't send it to everyone at UCSF, but I sent it to everyone where I worked, on the campus where I worked and in the cancer center where I worked. And I called a number of people and told them that over the phone and I emailed a bunch of other folks. So I tried to figure out who I wanted to tell more directly, but many, many people would, would hear about it via the email. And so this is the poem that references multiple sclerosis that was very much a private poem until um, I submitted it and, it and it was published as a poem. And, and it's called Sliding Down. Every parent knows the question, a suggestion really, asked and offered with nothing but love. No challenge to independence or skill or bravery. Do you want to slide down on your butt? Just the hard part, just the steepest part with the eroded soil and the rotted wooden planks. Here was my beautiful wife asking me, a grown man, her man, with whom she'll stick no matter what, even after the MS progresses further and I cannot even slide anymore. Bristling a little with the question, I wondered privately, how will I get down?
And do I really deserve such a sweet woman caring if I do? You shouldn't have made that bet, Mike, because you were going to lose and fate had determined that the time was right. There was definitely an experience of seeing that email and just almost almost feeling like I was the, like wondering, like, am I the only person in this universe? I cannot believe that all of this is circling around sort of my little issue here. But it, it happened. It was an incredible honor. For me, it was clearly a sense that, that this was a, right, the universe giving me a push um, in the direction I needed to go. And in, in retrospect, yeah, I, I kind of can't believe how long it took. And yet, I almost don't regret any of that time just because in some ways I see it as me treating myself compassionately if not quite you know completely honestly it was me caring for myself in the way that somehow I needed to take care of myself for for a while and and I, I came away very much just appreciative of everyone's patience with me mostly mostly of my wife's patience just again that realization that whatever part of reality I want to deny, someone else has to carry. I mean, there's no other way for reality to exist in our lives. Someone has to carry it. And it finally dawned on me as a husband, as a partner, as a as a father, as a colleague, as a mentor, as the people I teach that I needed to, I wanted to, I needed to, and I wanted to do better and to be more honest. So there was both a, a personal motivation because of the, the disquiet, the inauthenticity, but there was also sort of a, a principle at stake of like, this is mine to carry. And as a mature, responsible person, I, I have to start doing that. And it's really, I think, opened up for me a, a, a sorting of, of things that I take on as mine and things that I don't take on as mine. Sort of being a little bit more honest about what really is mine has allowed me to see that there are some things that I do or that I worry about that are someone else's problem. And there are other things that Similarly, I might be projecting onto other people and blaming other people for, you know, it's both and. There's lots of each of those, I think, in, in my life. But this was helpful, super helpful for me to just begin the process of more accurately sorting out the challenges and the opportunities both in my life. And what possibly you are not seeing immediately is the gift that you are giving to all of us in sharing this story and in exploring it in the way that you have. There's extraordinary wisdom, there's extraordinary vulnerability, there is the sharing of the story of our humanity in what you have so generously shared with us today. Mike Rayboy, it's been an honor spending time with you. I can see even in the year that we 
have been apart and not had a conversation that you have blossomed into an even greater healer than when we first met. Thank you so much. Well, I, you're incredibly kind. Uh, I appreciate being here with you and I will uh, join you again every year, at least in honor of these conversations. Um, and just add one last thought, which is being vulnerable is what people love about each other. I, I think I've come to recognize that what I love about people and what people love about me are the things that are vulnerable, are the things that are tender, are the things that we keep safe. We just have to be careful not to keep them so safe that we don't share them with ourselves or with other people. When I shared with so many people, I, I got nothing, you know, hundreds of emails expressing love. And that's an incredible gift to me. The Health Design Podcast. Serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. Thank you.